Hello, Duncan Green here with a long roundup of two weeks of um, blogs and other pieces on the From Poverty to Power uh, blog. Um, apologies for missing out on a week. It was just uh, too crazy after I got back from Bolivia and I had to miss one. Um, okay, so let's start. Uh, these are the first two weeks of July. So let's start with the 1st of July. Maria Fasilince, my uh, colleague who works with me on the blog, did one of her increasingly impressive roundups of links, the sort of annotated bibliography. And this one was on what she calls critical cartography. <clears throat> so maps are not just things that you, are neutral objects that you put on the wall or, or look at a globe. They are imbued with politics and power and shape the way we see the world. And Maria put together a fantastic list of initiatives and views of ways of looking at cartography and map making, including collective cartography, participatory map making, where you get people to draw maps of their own environments, their own situations, which has been particularly useful in um, uh, indigenous rights movements and land rights movements. And what I think the underlying message is that um, technology and politics don't have to be uh, enemies. This is one example where they work incredibly well together, where the technology, if you get the politics right, the technology amplifies what you're trying to achieve as a social movement, um, uh, and, and the two really work together. And it generated a lot of interest on Twitter, loads of responses on the blog. Generally, the last two weeks have been full of chats and conversations in the comments section of the blog, which always makes me incredibly happy. So um, that was a very good start to the month. Um, the rest of the, of the week uh, was largely dominated by a big exchange on this whole adaptive management and thinking and working politically movement within the aid sector, which I've written about a lot. I won't rehearse it now, but the three posts, the first of them was on a new paper by... Uh, uh, De Sandy, Marquette, Laws and Robinson, summarizing what they could find in terms of the evidence that this new way of working, this adaptive management, this thinking and working politically, thinking more about the politics and the, econo the political economy of a situation, working with the grain, changing as you go, learning and iterating and adapting, is it actually achieving better results? And their view is pretty much that there's not much evidence yet. Uh, what evidence there is is very anecdotal, um, is often carried out by the projects themselves or people very close to them, um, and is not particularly robust. Now, you know, I, I agree with some of it, and I guess I'm one of the culprits in that I've just been writing papers about programs, looking at them in terms of their process and how they work rather than their impact. But I was also a bit critical of some of the gaps in, their, in what they were writing about, um, and I'm not sure they really know what impact looks like. However, when I said that, it triggered a big conversation. So um, that, that's, that's ongoing. Yet more comments. But then the, 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 the top post for comments was one the next day by Heather Marquette, one of the authors of the paper I just mentioned, did this fantastic forensic analysis of what are, what's the difference between all these different acronyms. You've got PDIA, Problem-Driven Iterative Adaptation, Thinking and Working Politically, TWP, Political Economy Analysis, PEA, Doing Development Differently, DDD. And she says a lot of people just mush them all together and say, well, you know, PDIA, PEA, DDD, whatever. And the service she does is really try and pull them apart and say, okay, so what are the different politics involved? What's the different relationship of this particular acronym to the aid sector? 
Uh, is it more about practice or about the way we see the world and analyze it? And that just got everybody talking. So 25 comments uh, uh, as of now, uh, which is you know, a big number on any blog and uh, a really useful contribution, I think, to the to the to the to sharpening up people's conversations about this stuff. Um, and then the third in the series on adaptive management was me kind of demonstrating, I suppose, um, some of the problems of the evidence in that here, here, here I was with uh, my colleague Angela Christie from ITAD um, summarizing three uh, uh, case studies of adaptive management in DFID projects funded by DFID. We tried to be as independent as possible and had lots of fights with um, DFID and other people uh, in writing them. But you could easily say, that yeah this is um, yeah this is not robust and we certainly didn't really dig into outcomes what difference has this made in the lives of poor people and communities we were looking much more at the process of what what enables adaptive management to work to function within the aid sector and I think the big contribution of the best bit of the paper uh, and the bit that people have picked up on a lot is that we disaggregate adaptive management into three interlocking things. At the front end, the people are out there in the communities or talking to policymakers in any given country. We call it adaptive delivery. And that is local entrepreneurs, often quite well connected politically, who are able to spot opportunities. They, they've got the relationships and they can sort of lobby essentially and work either from the inside or in a insider outsider with 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 CS, with the civil society organizations and they're the people who are absolutely essential to making this adaptive management thing work they have to be managed and funded by somebody and that somebody is usually a contractor or a larger organization with an office in the capital city whose staff have to both support and protect the adaptive delivery people out on the ground and make sure they don't go rogue, make sure they don't, that, that if something isn't working, they actually drop it and try something else. You get terribly wedded and uh, excited about the things you've been involved in. It's very hard to let them go. So the adaptive deliverers have to face outwards to the real world and upwards to their bosses in, the, in, the, in, the, in HQ. The adaptive programmers, that's what we call this function in the middle, have to hold that umbrella over the adaptive delivery people on the ground and support them, but they have to face upwards to the donors. So they have to know what, what the politics is, you know, is going on in the donor organization, what kind of evidence the donor needs to keep, um, to keep, keep them happy, how do you, how do you ma upwardly manage the donor. And then the donor we call adaptive governance. The person in the, you know, who's responsible for the project in the donor has to get the information they need, support the programmers, but also face upwards to their colleagues and bosses. So everybody's facing two ways at once. Everybody's kind of um, uh, juggling and trying to work out how to make this thing work. And I think it's a very fragile equilibrium. When it works, it works because there's a very high degree of trust. But if that trust breaks down, the whole thing kind of folds in on itself and no one's really willing to give anybody any room for manoeuvre and then it can collapse. And that's what we've seen in, in several moments in the projects we looked at. So I think we're starting to understand a bit the, 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 the plumbing of adaptive management, of how this stuff works. Um, but we still, I would agree with, um, with the previous uh, post that we still need a lot more work on does it actually work better than traditional aid. I'm pretty sure it does. But I would say that, wouldn't I? Uh, we, need some, we need something stronger than that. Then the weekends with uh, a, a, another Power Shifts post. Um, 
in this new project, we've got to try and get more voices and contributions from uh, Southern-based authors and about a more diverse range of topics. And I really like this one. This one is about an artist called Carlo Gabucho, or Gabuco, sorry, um, who, who's, who, who makes art about the war on drugs in the Philippines stirred up by a rather violent and unpleasant president, President Duterte, which is uh, thousands of people have been killed in this war on drugs. Gabuco does kind of art, uh, things like walls of photos of, uh, without names, of the people who've been killed, or you sit in a chair and you hear testimony of some of a, of a girl talking about how her father was shot in front of her. And I think that what, the, what the post examines is, is the power of art, especially to change attitudes and norms and all these things we increasingly talk about. You know, this is not about tweaking policy. This is about people in the Philippines realizing that these are fellow citizens, fellow human beings who are on the, who are on the receiving end of this, this, um, these, uh, this mur mass murder and, um, and, and changing their attitudes towards it. So very powerful. That was week one. Week two, we started with a links I liked. Um, uh, two atrocious bits of journalism, uh, I think I'll pick out from that list. The first was the, uh, the Times of, of London. Um, a, f a couple of weeks ago, something really horrible happened. Somebody stowed away in, I think it was a Kenya Airways aircraft, um, froze to death. And when the aircraft opened its landing gear as it came into Heathrow, a frozen body fell out and landed in a garden in, in, in a posh bit of London. The Times headline was, Sunbather nearly hit by falling body is Oxford graduate, which is you know, as close to the onion in terms of you know, bad satire or good satire as you can get, but it was real. And it shows something, says something absolutely terrible about the way British journalists see their role, I think. I don't know what's going on there, but it was just, it, it went very viral, as you can imagine, on Twitter with everybody um, jumping up and down. At the, is it really the main issue here? Which university that sunbather went to rather than the story of the person who stowed away and froze to death and why they did that? The, the slightly less gr gross, but still pretty bad, New York Times uh, uh, also went viral when it put out, somebody spotted its ad for uh, its Nairobi bureau chief, uh, the main sort of boss journalist in Nairobi. And the ad was like this extraordinary riff of, uh, of cliches, Western cliches about Africa, pirate seas and, and burning deserts and you know, exotic um, forests all dis interspersed with moments of hope and um, a bunch of African uh, activists and, 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 and writers got stuck in on this and, and some of them were just hilarious. So I urge you to look that one up. Um, three uh, brilliant women just made a video in which they just read out the advert and the advert was so bad that even that worked brilliantly as satire. So um, everybody had a lot of fun with that one. Um, the, uh, the week continued with uh, a couple of posts about, essentially about care, about looking after ourselves and in particular looking after activists and, and researchers on the ground. Both of them came from Africa. The first one was somebody called Tamani Mwaki Presia, who, who wrote about being a researcher in the DRC. And uh, as he put it, um, being a researcher in the DRC is not sitting in libraries, you know, um, getting bored and doing databases. He says it puts you routinely in life-threatening situations. 
Um, and he came up with some you know, grisly examples of seeing dead bodies lined up in front of you and, 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 and fear and anxiety. And he says, actually, you know, that actually produces a fair amount of trauma in researchers, which just doesn't work in the way research is discussed and the endless conversations about methodologies and reporting requirements and finance and all the rest of it. And he's saying, you know, we need to actually think about managing the trauma that can come from research in some of these conflict areas. And then the second post by uh, an African feminist called Jessica Horn was in a way similar in that she was arguing that well-being and self-care is, is an essential part of a sustainable social movement. Um, and that, that this is, an, uh, you know, often we, I think, activists tend to think that you, know, you self-sacrifice is what it's all about. And not surprisingly, we then get very high rates of burnout. And activists, you know, just as they acquire the kind of experience and judgment and, and contacts that can make them more effective, just say, oh, I can't do this anymore and give up. So how do you actually, you know, introduce an element of, of self-care into this terribly frenetic, driven um, lifestyle? And then the final, uh, the last two posts of, uh, of the week were two from me on my recent trip to Bolivia. I had a fantastic week in Bolivia, um, totally uh, enthralling, first up in La Paz and then down in the lowlands in Chiquitania. So the first post was on um, a really good workshop we had where basically I laid out what I thought was a good approach to power analysis and how can you move from analyzing power to mapping the relevant stakeholders to designing a, a, a change strategy of some kind. And the uh, Oxfam Bolivia people said, yeah, we tried that, it doesn't work. And they gave me some fantastic critiques and, and suggestions for improving it. And so some of the basic ones, spend much more time on defining the problem. You know, there's a thing called five whys where you say, why is this a problem? No, no, why is this a problem? No, no, why is this a problem? And somebody did that with me today, and it was quite painful, but really productive. The second one is don't think that you understand power easily or immediately. Stay with the question of what kind of power are we talking about here? Is this formal power, power, decisions being made in government? Is it hidden power behind the scenes power where people have networks and influences which we can't see but we ought to try and find out about is it invisible power questions of people's own self-confidence or self-disqualification think keep thinking more about that because that ought to be the heart of your change strategy your change strategy should be the one that fits with how you understand the change of power that needs to take place Another point, who does the stakeholder mapping? Is it us? Is it just people sitting in an Oxfam office or a partner office? Can you involve the people themselves who are involved in the, in the system much more in, in doing the mapping? Lots of other things. So it was a really good conversation. And then finally, once in a while, I get to go back somewhere. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but I got to go back to a place called Chiquitania, which is this amazing... Um, story of the Chiquitano Indians in, in lowland Bolivia who went from being essentially feudal serfs to winning a million hectares of land just about when I first went there in 2006. Um, so I wrote it all up. It was very influential in terms of my thinking about how change happens both in the book I was writing then, From Poverty to Power, and then in the subsequent book, um, uh, uh, How Change Happens. And I thought, right, time to go back and see what's happened. And it wasn't at all a good news story at all. They've still got the land, which they value very much, but they've, they feel under siege from uh, extractive industries, loggers. They feel abandoned by the government of Evo Morales, 
which is um, has retreated much more into a logic of we have to extract oil and gas and, and tax it in order to pay for all the things that poor people in Bolivia are demanding of us. And that has led to a kind of breakdown in relations, as far as I could see, between the lowland Indians who live in, um, in the areas where the oil and gas is and the highland Indians who are much more numerous, who are basically in power um, uh, through Evo Morales. Uh, that may be a very crude version of what's going on, but there was a battle of logics there. There was a logic of extractivism, a logic of indigenous rights, a logic of winning elections, and a logic of markets, and they're all competing. And at the moment, the Chiquitanos um, uh, don't, don't seem to be winning that one, but they've come an enormous uh, way, and, and uh, I, I finished with an activist just saying, look, they're not going away. These people have made such extraordinary gains over, the, over in their lifetimes. You know, they will find a way through this. And I, I, I cling to that and hope that they can uh, continue to make progress with their, their struggle in Chiquitania. And with that, I think I better stop. <laughs>